0: Welcome, one and all, to the Classic English Literature Subcast. Please do take your seats and silence your devices. Refreshments are available at the kiosks. The show is about to begin. Well, not quite. We're about to embark on a multi episode discussion of one of the most fertile periods of English literature that of the Renaissance Theater. This is the period that gives us Ben Jonson, Christopher Marlowe, and, of course, William Shakespeare, among many, many others. And before we settle into an examination of the writers and their most influential plays, I thought it meet to set down in our tables a bird's-eye view of the development and culture of early modern playgoing. So this is not really a show about the literature itself, but rather a look at the context in which that literature was written, performed, and enjoyed. Back in podcast episode 18, we looked at the birth of English drama in the Middle Ages and the roots of that drama in medieval religious performances. You'll remember we talked about the mystery plays, dramatic reenactments of stories from the Bible, particularly focusing on events surrounding the life of Christ and salvation history. We also discussed briefly miracle plays which depicted the lives of saints and their miraculous deeds. Morality plays like Everyman personified moral attributes and depicted characters facing moral dilemmas allegorically representing the struggle between good and evil. Performed by members of craft guilds, these plays were an essential part of religious festivals and processions, and they did much to instruct a largely illiterate population in Christian dogma. I noted, too, that classical drama did not directly influence medieval English drama. But by the Renaissance, the rediscovery and popularity of ancient Greek drama had a profound impact on English scribblers, especially the works of playwrights like Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus. Roman comedies and tragedies, especially those by Seneca, Terence, and Plautus, also influenced early English playwrights as translations and adaptations of Roman plays began to circulate during this period. Developing from the classical oeuvre more directly, Italian playwrights of the early modern era gained some popularity in England, especially people working in the Commedia dell'arte, which influenced the development of English comedy. Now, folk traditions and festivities lent an indigenous flavor to Elizabethan theater, and traveling actors and minstrels roamed the countryside, performing at fairs, markets, and other public gatherings, entertaining audiences with songs, dances, and maybe the odd, simple, dramatic skit. But the real hub of cultural activity, attracting artists, musicians, and intellectuals, was undoubtedly the royal court. Now, as we've seen in previous episodes, courtiers competed for the queen's favor, and talented individuals found opportunities to showcase their skills and gain patronage. Untalented individuals were cast into the outer darkness where there was great wailing and gnashing of teeth. At this time, patronage played a crucial role in supporting artists and writers, Wealthy nobles, members of the royal court even, including the Lord Chamberlain, Queen Elizabeth herself, and King James, they provided financial support and protection to artists and acting companies. These theater companies, like those of William Shakespeare or Christopher Marlowe and others, they relied on such patronage. Now, in return for their support— Patrons were often entertained by exclusive performances and plays written to honor them or their families. Uh, Nowadays, we call this uh, propaganda, Uh, a cabal of elites in the theatrical political complex. But the theater also attracted the newly affluent middle classes who demanded entertainment and cultural participation. At the bottom of the social scale, the Groundlings or the stinkards, (laughs) the stinkards were also avid theater goers paying a penny to stand at a performance. So theaters catering to a diverse audience were vital social spaces. They fostered a sense of communal identity and they provided a platform for the expression of different perspectives. The first permanent theatre built in London, imaginatively called The Theatre, was constructed in 1576 by James Burbage, a renowned actor and entrepreneur in the Shortage area. It was an open-air amphitheatre, since plays were staged in natural daylight, and had a circular or like octagonal shape designed to accommodate a large number of spectators. Stage was at one end, and the audience was on the three sides. The Curtain Theatre, another early permanent open air playhouse, came up the following year nearby in Curtain Close. These fellas busted hump coming up with catchy names, huh? Like the greatest writers in history, and they come up with theater and curtain. Nice work, boys. The Lord Chamberlain's men which is a prominent acting company that later became the King's Men, with Big Bill Shakespeare as one of its members, Uh, they operated at the Curtain. Then uh, a guy named Philip Henslow, a thrusting entrepreneur, established the Rose Theater in 1587 in Bankside in Southwark. Now, here's a fun fact. It's the first theater to be purpose-built entirely as a playhouse rather than adapting existing structures. So if you're ever on Jeopardy, there you go. Rose Theater, first purpose-built playhouse in England. The builders favored, again, a polygonal shape, and this time a thatched roof. And this one could hold 1,500 punters, and included some special machinery for mind-boggling effects. And of course, the globe, right? the most famous of all Elizabethan theatres. That one was erected in 1599 in Bankside by the Lord Chamberlain's men, later the King's men, and it used timber from the theatre, which had been dismantled due to a dispute with the landlord, a Mr. Allen, about renewing the lease. So, yes, Shakespeare and his crew of desperate actors, armed with daggers, clubs, and verbal irony, Actually, by the dark of a Christmas time night, stole the wood and set up a new theatre. The wooden O could hold up to three thousand people. Other theatres followed, like the Fortune, The Swan, and the hope, and we also eventually got indoor theatres like Blackfriars came into vogue for a more discriminating clientele and not to mention the effects that could be created with artificial light. As I've suggested, each of these venues housed a particular acting company or troupe who worked together under the leadership of a patron or manager to produce and perform plays. Now, These companies were all male affairs. Women were not permitted on the English stage for another century or so. This was not, as many suppose, a law to preserve public modesty and moral rectitude. Rather, it was simply a business custom modeled on the medieval guild system, kind of a a gendered, closed shop. Actors were usually employed full-time, and the companies had a repertoire of plays— including a mix of historical plays, tragedies, comedies, and romances that they performed regularly. The most renowned actors, the leading players, were the main attractions, and they received higher pay and prominence, just like our movie stars today. Companies would also have their comic actors, their clowns, but not like the deeply unsettling circus variety, and they were often given free reign to improvise parts or perform interludes to interact with the audience and kind of gear things up. The company also had its supporting actors. It had apprentices and then, you know, crew members, techies, we would call them now, responsible for costumes, stage management, and uh, and other aspects of production. And while permanent theaters were becoming the norm touring performances were still vital to dramatic culture and necessary when those urban venues had to be closed due to plague and let's not think london was the only city with playhouses you got bristol norwich and york they had regional theaters and companies and these too could be highly itinerant we tend to think of theater as a bit highbrow nowadays something for the the bree nibbling champagne sipping elite But in the 16th century, drama was at best middle-brow, and theater attendance was definitely slumming it among the hoi polloi. Playhouses were businesses, uh, not just like they are today, but back then they lacked the pretentious conceit that the art was a higher calling. Just look at the fact that there are so few scripts surviving from this period— In general, even the writers saw their jobs as hack work, as ephemeral. Few were concerned enough to even publish their manuscripts, Ben Johnson's rather crass middle-class ambition notwithstanding. There was, however, a thriving black market for bootleg scripts, cobbled together from notes taken by an enterprising audience member, or clandestine meetings with members of the company, tattletales. No, the raison d'etre of the great Renaissance theater was bums on seats. Get the punters in. So sex, violence, scandal, and as many genital puns per minute as possible were the order of the day. And you wanted those bums on seats as often as possible. So you had to have a variety of plays ready to go, hence the repertoire system. You might even need one for each day of the week. So you've got actors who may have six or seven plays in their head at any given time. And you needed that so folks would come back again and again. Now, given the immense pressure, such a volume of material demands, it should not surprise that playwrights frequently collaborated with each other. Now, this otherwise completely quotidian observation, sometimes causes hand-wringing anxiety in those who wish to believe that Shakespeare, for instance, was a a solitary genius, channeling the eternal verities of the cosmos on the mountaintop. Of course, it also encourages deluded conspiracy theorists who assert that Shakespeare didn't write the works attributed to him. It's all a ruse, a cover-up. We know that Billy the Bard collaborated with, with George Peel, Thomas Kidd, John Fletcher, with, with Nash and Wilkins and Middleton. This is, this is no secret, and this in no way diminishes the great human achievement of his plays. I mean, is a Beatles song any less great because both Lennon and McCartney contributed to it? Stuff and nonsense. And as for the the Shakespeare-didn't-write-Shakespeare conjectures, here is, here's my opinion, arrived at after a life of study and consideration. It's absolute arsewater. It doesn't deserve any greater attention than that. There's no need to be fair and balanced to present both sides of the issue. It's simply bollocks. And while I'm here... To those who offer their custom to tinfoil haberdashers, allow me to assure you that the pyramids did not store Israelite grain. The earth is round. Stonehenge is not an alien helipad. The Titanic lost a game of chicken with an iceberg. The CIA did not shoot President Kennedy. Princess Diana died in an automobile accident. Area 51 is an Air Force base in a giant litter box. 9-11 was an outside job. The moon landing was real. And professional wrestling is as fake as claims of a stolen American election. The truth is out there. Hmm. Uh, Seemed to have veered off point a bit here, but it needed to be said. Where was I? Theater-going experience. Yes, it was not a toffee-nosed affair in the Elizabethan world. It was quite de classe, as I say, slumming. The London theaters, uh, for instance, were not built within the city of London proper, but just outside. So city laws against vice did not obtain. Playhouses occupied the, the same spaces as gambling dens, brothels, taverns, and fighting pits. These were early modern red-light districts featuring sex workers of all descriptions and inclinations, heavy drinking, and blood sports such as bull-baiting, bear-baiting, and cockfighting, in which the roosters frequently competed also, I am told, on good authority. A wonderland in which decadence, depravity, dissolution, degradation, and delight roiled the senses. Such districts also gained, they gained a cosmopolitan flavor, as foreign visitors sought to unwind on the wild side of town. Bad behavior is truly universal. Google some images of the era's prominent writers. And don't let the frilly collars, puffy pants, and tights fool you. These were hard men. Ben Johnson killed an actor in a duel, tore a six-inch hole in the guy. Kit Marlowe was murdered in a tavern brawl. He got stabbed in the skull. William Shakespeare, tax evasion. Hard men with fists like matured hams. Point is, theaters were lively places. Going to the theater was a popular pastime and a social event. People from different social classes would gather, hobnob, discuss the plays, making it a hotbed of cultural and political exchange. The actors at Elizabethan theaters often engaged with this rowdy audience, breaking the fourth wall, addressing them directly. The actors prowled the entire stage and sometimes even the galleries, providing a 360-degree a theatrical experience. Yeah. Hmm. I think that'll do for the nonce. I'm sure I've forgotten some crucially important bits in this broad overview. But if so, I'll try to catch them in later episodes as they make themselves more evidently germane. Don't forget to review the podcast and follow me on the InstaTwit Face TalkTube. Like those posts, please, please like those posts. Between positive reviews and social media likes, we can raise the potty's visibility and we can attract some new friends to the clubhouse. Thanks everybody for listening. Y'all be careful.